You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Tracy Garrett is an elite runner who won the Maine Marathon last October and a former University of Maine basketball player. She is also the director of faith formation at St. Paul the Apostle Church in Bangor. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. We first learned about um, your success as a runner at the Maine Marathon. Actually, I was I was there and saw you up on the podium wearing your was it a crown of laurel or something? Yeah, Olympian looking. Yeah, that like was like that. the best part of it all. <laughs> yeah, it was really it was really great, and you were very emotional about the whole thing. I was. Yeah, um, you know, the Maine Marathon was a goal race for me. Just being from the state of Maine, I feel like it's the marathon in the state. And, um, you know, I'm such a Mainer and I love our state. And so I just want to go down there and do really well. And so it had been a, my goal race this fall. And in my heart, I knew I could do really well. Um, and I trained very hard. I actually, I live in Bangor and I, I would drive down on the weekends and do my workouts on the course at the different points of the course. So I knew it very well. And so kind of secretly, I'd, I was working really, really hard at it. Um, so yeah, you know, I, you have that goal and you have the confidence to do it. Um, and I knew I knew I could do it, and so just to be able to run that fast, to win it obviously was was a gift and a blessing. But then to qualify or to run the qualifying time, and to run so fast, that was kind of unexpected. So yeah, I was very emotional and happy with it. So when you actually finished, did you know that you had gotten a qualifying time for the Olympics? I did. That's that was a goal of mine, and I didn't think I was going to run that fast that soon. Um, and so, uh, and I, so to qualify for the Olympic trials, you have to run a sub 245 marathon. And uh, so that was my goal. And I, I thought it was going to take me a couple of years. Um, and again, you know, in my mind, I had that confidence that I could do it. Uh, but to do it on that course, and it's a very challenging course. So a lot of my friends in the running world um, were kind of deterring me from doing the main marathon because it's such a challenging course. And so, uh, yeah, again, I was pleased to, to run it that hard and to, to be that consistent with my mileage and, and to run it that, that well was, was wonderful. Yes, I've, I've run that course. I've run the marathon now a few times, and it is very challenging, like, <laughs> especially on the way back, and there's some pretty big hills on Route 88. Yeah, surprisingly, you know, I thought the way out was going to be hard. You know, on an, on an out and back, you kind of just wait for the half. You know, you're waiting to get to that 13, and you know you could turn around and come back. And so, um, yeah, and I had practiced it a bunch of times, but there's a hill at 17, I think. Is it Tuttle Hill? Yeah. So that kind of hurts. But I knew, because I've trained so much on it, I knew that afterward you have some sort of flat, and then it's, there's a downhill, so there's a nice recovery after. Um, so I thought, you know, once I get to 20, it's going to be all, you know, downhill, supposedly coming into Portland. And But I'm telling you, that last, like, mile and a half is hard, because you get onto Baxter Boulevard, and you could see the finish, but you still have have a mile and a half and that by that point you're extremely exhausted and so I think somebody videotaped me coming in and uh, a friend of mine and 
you know, I was trying to work as hard as I could, but I was just you know, really tired by that point. And I kept looking at him as if to say, stop videotaping me. <laughs> um, but it's a nice footage to have, you know, coming in. But yeah, it's challenging. Yeah, that, I think that is the worst part of that last part is that you're thinking, oh, I'm almost done, but you're really not. You're really not. And yeah. it's much and further see, around. It is much further around. You can see the finish. And your watch doesn't lie. So, you know, I have my Garmin on and I know that I have about a couple miles left. So you're just trying to work hard, at, you know, as hard as you can to finish. So as perspective for people who are listening who may not be runners, what what per mile are you needing to run to do sub 245? Yeah, and so uh, talking with my, my coach, Rob Gomez, um, we kind of had a plan that I would go out and do the first 13 miles at a 6.20 pace and then the last 13 at 6.15. And so to go sub 245, it's around a 6.17, but you don't want to mess around. And so, again, I go out too hard, um, so I went out at 6.12s. And on the back side, it was about like a 6.19. But you need, so the focus was like 6.15, so 6 minute 15 second pace. Which per is mile. pretty fast. It is pretty fast. It is. It's it's funny. It's it's daunting to think about as I sit here with you, but it's amazing what your body can do when you train for it. You ran a lot of miles to get ready for the main marathon and then the marathon in California that you did not too long after. I did, yeah. Um, you know, for some people, they can't run a lot of mileage. It just really negatively affects their body. And so for everyone, you kind of have to find that sweet spot which um, will benefit you but not kind of overtrain you and hurt you. Um, but for me, I could just run a lot of miles, and I think my body is able to take it. And so, yeah, I peaked out at 120 miles. So I would run – through the summer, I was running 80 to 90, which was not running a lot. I kind of, I kind of took a step back and focused more on speed because the Beach to Beacon was a gold race of mine. And then to ramp up um, through the fall, it was – yeah, it was about 100, 120 a week. Um, that last part is very important. <laughs> 120 <laughs> yeah. per week. Per week, 120. It and, takes a lot of time. You're probably not running every single day. I am. I don't take a day off. Okay. A day off for me would be m- maybe an easy 10 in the morning. So um, I just I want to just give that a moment to sink in for people <laughs> who are listening. 120 yeah. miles a week. So even divided by seven and say the 10 is your small, small mileage. Mm-hmm. I mean, most days you're running what? Um at least at least 15 to 18 maybe and so then you have that long weekend run like I ran 22 this past Saturday I ran 16 on Sunday um ran 15 yesterday I'm hoping to get close to 20 today so and I don't do that all at once I double a lot um and you know I'm older so it's it's interesting at my age so I'll I'll try to run more in the morning um but for me to get back out there and run like a four or five easy um a couple miles in the afternoon really flushes out my legs surprisingly and I feel more recovered uh, for the next morning and so you think you're doing a lot and you're out there running a lot but you're so used to it that your body kind of craves that just to get it going again (laughs) if you could kind of wrap your mind around that but yeah before you did this you were a basketball player at the University of Maine I was so you had a whole different life as a different type of athlete I was, yeah. I um, I, I've I've played team sports all my life. You know, I grew up in a small town in northern Maine, uh, Saint Agatha, and uh, we didn't have cross country or track or anything. And so, I just played every sport that was available to us. And basketball was the one that I kind of gravitated towards. It's the one that I spent the most time doing through the summer and in the off season. Um, so I've been playing since I was four. And yeah, playing again. I'm a Mainer. I love the state. So playing at the University of Maine was my was my goal and my dream. And I was being recruited throughout New England and uh, Division One schools, two and three. But I, in my heart, I want to play for Maine. And so, yeah, it's a totally different mindset 
being a team sport athlete is just very different than being um, a runner. I find it's uh, it, being a runner on a cross country team. It's a team aspect, but it's more individual. And so it's yeah, it's it's been really neat to experience both team athletics and then you know more more now in my older age becoming a runner. St. Agatha is not a large town. It's not. I mean, I've driven through it on the way to Fort Kent um, <laughs> right. many, many times. Yeah, don't blink. Uh, <laughs> how big is the school system up there? It's very, very small. It's, uh, you know, the school system, they're, they're divided into different classes. And so we're the smallest class in the state. We're D. Um, and uh, very small. My graduating class was 33, which was considered a, a big class back then. Um, and it's still open. You know, the high school is 7 through 12. Um, but I, but I loved it. You know, I, they say, you know, when they, we talk about um, good teacher to student ratio, like we had small classes, phenomenal teachers, great education, um, and the, the town is wonderful. Everybody was my friend. You know, we grew up together, playing sports together. You're in extracurricular activities together. You all go to church together, and so it was definitely a blessing being able to grow up in such a small, tight knit town. And I didn't know any different. You know, we, I never thought I went without. Um, you know, the closest Walmart's an hour away. That's not a big deal. Uh, so yeah, it was just a wonderful upbringing up there. And it's beautiful as well. You know, I, I love it. And it's, it's probably one of my best places to visit in the state. It is beautiful. And it's also interesting that you were able to come out of um, such a small graduating high school class and play for the University of Maine, which is a division one school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I, I keep in touch with the UMaine coaches. I was I was recently an assistant coach at the University of Maine um, with that coaching staff, and the big argument that I would have in, in a charitable way was, hey, even though um, a student athlete's from a small town, doesn't mean they can't play at this level. Um, and so, yeah, you know, if there's talent there, then they're able to play. And and I was very fortunate. I have older brothers, so I'd, I'd always play with them, and, um, you know, they made me tough and competitive. I'd go to camps throughout the summer, um, and I play on AAU teams. So I'd play on these AAU teams um, with the best players throughout the state of Maine, and we'd travel throughout New England and beyond. And so I was playing against um, like that competitiveness, that competitive athlete, uh, and so I knew I could play at that level. Um, and you know, and back in the day, yeah, these, these teams were made up of the best athletes, like I said, so I was playing against kids from down here, from the middle of the state, and so um, I really felt like I was well prepared to play at the University of Maine. Your last name is French. It correct. is. Yep. Um, and your family is very important to you. It, yeah, they are. I'm, I'm blessed. You know, I, I talk about my parents um, who are still, you know, I, it, this sounds like morbid, but they're still alive and doing well. They're older um, and they still live in St. Agatha, uh, but they're saints. They really are. They're the most selfless, generous people that I know. Um, and so, yeah, being brought up from Northern Maine, it's very French, it's very Catholic, uh, very tight-knit. And so I grew up in a French-speaking household. And so my parents would speak French to us as children. And what happened, and I regret this, is we would respond in English. And I think my parents regret not kind of f- making us speak it more in the home. Um, and I regret not practicing more. And so I could understand it perfectly, but my confidence isn't there when I speak it. And I'm sure, you know, we go to Quebec a lot in Quebec City and my parents are in their element and I try to kind of practice my French when I'm there and it helps. Like the more you stay there and then you kind of get used to speaking it. But uh, 
but yeah, French speaking community. And, you know, to speak with my grandparents, I'd have to converse with them in French. So, and it's still very French up there when you go home, you know, the, the conversations. And it's funny, you know, it was, we just had Christmas. And you, if you sit there in the living room and listen to people talk, they'll go from French to English to French to English. And so, um, yeah, it's still very much alive and well. And it's really beautiful too. A lot of the traditions of like the French speaking and just, just the fact that we're Quebecois a lot of those traditions are still very present up there as well. Um, so that's nice to experience when I go home. Even as you're talking, I can... Can you look, pick it out? I can actually pick it out as you talk about being up there. There's like this interesting um, inflection that happens. It's very specific to Northern Maine, and I know this because I spent a lot of time with people who were French-speaking from Northern Maine at one point in my life. And um, what I found was people would, the inflection would leave their voices, but then if they talked about being in Northern Maine, it would come back again. And it's very subtle. But I, I think it's also a very different kind of French than what many people are taught in school these days. You know, unfortunately, that's what's happened. Uh, so, you know, we're all speaking this. It's almost like it's a Quebecois Acadian French. So it's not your Parisian French that you would hear in France. Um, so we'd speak it in the home and amongst each other. But then in school, we would be taught the Parisian French, which is very different. And again, I just regret, I wish they would have more kind of um, the, the tangible French speaking in the schools, you know, so we would learn the proper French from France. Um, and so I think that kind of led to the fact that a lot of us don't speak it anymore. It was more of a confusion um, than a help. Interesting fact, though, um, or just interesting story. A couple years ago, I went to Italy with the UMA basketball team. Um, we went and we played a couple games against some professional teams over there. And uh, when we were in um, Tuscany, there was a group from Bordeaux, France. And I could converse with them perfectly. So I don't know. And they say that, that the French from those small towns have been preserved. And, and that's where my ancestry is from. And so if they came to northern Maine or to Nova Scotia, Acadia, and then eventually to northern Maine, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I could, I could understand their dialect, and we conversed very well. A couple days later, we were in Rome. And there was a group from Paris. And we told, I, I couldn't understand them, and they couldn't understand me. And so it's interesting, isn't it? I don't know, and I, I don't know why that is. Just the different dialects of the of the French, um, and, and you know, my parents are the same. So it's funny. Like I mentioned, when we go to Quebec City, all those little towns on the way to Quebec City that you stop in, it's totally French. And my parents are like, they're in their element. You know, they get all excited, and even they're like you're saying, they sound differently. It's just kind of brings something out in them as well. Yeah, I believe that um, Saint Agatha was uh, Senegat. It was yeah. the, and I don't know that I'm pronouncing it correctly. It but is. You are a Senegat. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I learned French in high school. My dad spoke French. He was, um, his family was from Biddeford, and they spoke French in um, amongst the grandparents and the aunts and uncles. I went up to northern Maine, and I did not have any idea what they were talking huh. about. It was yeah. so, it was so different. But it was so great because I would listen to what they would, people would say, and the names, and the way they pronounce people's last names. And I would kind of translate back, like, hmm, like this, this inflection is so different than what I'm used to, but so interesting. Right, yeah. And I think because people were anglicizing their names, so they, you know, they've changed their names a little bit. But yeah, I think, you know, you think of the people in Biddeford or Lewiston, they kind of came down from Quebec. And so again, I think that's the different areas, like, you know, Quebec City, the Quebecois. Um, and then you have some people in Northern Maine, so we're considered Acadians, right? Um, and the Acadians and the Quebecois could get kind of competitive against each other. I don't know. So it's just, yeah, you have all these different dialects and, and, um, language changing over time, but uh, 
but yeah, it's I, I love it. Um, again, I, I really I think you know people talk about two mains and okay, yeah, I know we're far up there, but I just it's beautiful. There's something really special about Northern Maine and St. John Valley. I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. And before I went up there, I didn't even realize that you know the Quebecois and the Acadian. I mean, they're they're very different groups, right? Very different groups. And I think within my genealogy, if I look at the both sides of my family, I know the the Garrets, the Garrets, there it's Quebecois, um, and my mom's a Sirois, a Sirois. And I think there's some Quebecois as well, but then you have the Sears, the the Michos, the, and so you have all these different kind of trees within your family. So I have both Acadian and Quebecois in my family. Um, and my parents are very into history. And so, um, you know, every time, again, we'd go to Quebec a lot, we'd stop. And we'd, my dad loves to visit graveyards, but he just loves the churches because you have all the historical records and things. So we'd visit churches and he'd walk through graveyards and he just loves that, just the history and the ancestry. And so that was a big part of growing up big important part of growing up for me as well. You've chosen a path that is um, unique these days, I would say. You currently work as the director of faith formation at St. Paul the Apostle Church in Bangor. I do. And you're going even deeper into your faith. I do, yeah. um, You know, the Catholic faith was just a huge part of my upbringing, um, just being very French and very Catholic. And, uh, you know, I I joke around and (laughs) Some some families decorate with like Pottery Barn. My my parents decorated with like Catholic memorabilia, you know, like crucifixes, statues, and just the things that make the faith alive in the home. Um, so yeah, it was a very important part of our upbringing. It was instilled into me. Um, yeah, and I you know I had a desire to give my whole life to God since a young age, and um, it it had always been a part of my life. And and funny enough, you know, even as an athlete, I, I really believe that God used just the, the the game of basketball and that simple thing in my life as a tool for my conversion. And so even playing at the University of Maine, um, basketball helped me to grow a lot in my faith. And so I was pre-med undergrad, you know, I had the aspirations of becoming a doctor. Um, and, you know, when I graduated, I just had a change of heart. And so it's kind of like, great, now what? You know, I took organic chemistry twice, you know, my MCATs a bunch of times, biochem, um, all these just really challenging classes to prepare myself. And I was applying to medical schools, but I wasn't sure. Uh, and so I eventually got my teaching certification and went back into teaching. And um, my mother had been a teacher. Uh, and so I think because she had been a teacher, I just swore not to do that, you know, when you're young and you're just, you want to do something different. Um, but I just really discovered how to give a teaching. And so started teaching, started coaching, um, but still wasn't satisfied. There was just something else that was missing. And so, yeah, in 2013, I had uh, just after much prayer and discernment decided to, to enter a religious community. So discern um, my religious vocation is the terminology, the Catholic terminology, but wanted to be a nun, <laughs> to give my whole life to God. And I know people could have their faith and that relationship is really important, but I, I just wanted to give everything. And so I entered a convent um, down in Nashville, Tennessee. The sisters were teachers, uh, and that really appealed to me, and beautiful, beautiful community. And in the first couple years of religious life, it's very free. So, you know, there's no other way to discern it, if you can imagine. It's so radical. Uh, And so the only way really is to enter the life and to truly live it. And so they allow you to do that. And so, yeah, gave up everything, you know, paid off my car, gave it to my parents, and they kept it, eventually gave it back to me, which was a blessing. But just gave away everything, um, cashed out on my 401k, just was, that was it. Um, And took that radical step and entered and... God really made it obvious, you know, living the life every day, and, and God really made it obvious to me that uh, 
that I'm not called to live in that community life, um, that I'm called to live my faith in the world, which I think could be more challenging. You know, when you have the strong belief, it's not that it's really easy, but if you're surrounded in this community with all the people that are like-minded, it can be easier. I feel like he's given me that spirit and that, even like my competitive nature and my passion to live my faith in the world and to make a difference for him in the world. So, so I left after six months and um, went back into coaching because I was coaching at the University of Maine at the time and Coach Richard Barron took me back. And, but I still, there's something missing. Um, and so at the end of that year, resigned again, poor Coach Barron resigned again and uh, took this position at the church. And so I'm the director of faith formation. And so um, we have six different churches under the umbrella of St. Paul the Apostle Parish. And so I oversee all the ministries that happen from um, baptism prep to little kids for faith formation, Sunday school, and our high school groups, um, to young adult ministry, our young families groups, adults. So I kind of oversee everything in our church. Uh, we're a very vibrant parish because Bangor, you know, Bangor, Hamden, Brewer, it's all together under one um, umbrella, uh, but very vibrant. And so it's very busy, <laughs> uh, but such a blessing. And so, you know, for now, I. I I could just, uh, I'm very content there, um, but no matter what I do, I, I want to do something in ministry, um, you know, and, and something to serve people and to give my life so that others may have life, you know, to make a difference in the world in a positive way. So, yeah, it's a blessing to be able to do that, St. Paul the Apostle. So you used the for now. You, so this still isn't what, Yeah. you're still not exactly sure. No. That Are, must be so interesting. Yeah, I know. Are we ever, though? Probably um, not. Maybe it's me. I don't think it's just you. But it is interesting that yeah. the way that you're approaching this is, all right, I, I know there's something. I'm not sure what it is. Right. I'm going to keep kind of getting deeper into it and yeah. being patient with that process. Right. And so, you know, I'm still discerning my vocation. Um, I'm 37. I'm single. Um, and it, it's still, you know, I'm still open to whatever God has for me, whether it's marriage or a consecrated form of a consecrated form of life, um, you know, totally giving my life to Him, um, and living in the world at the same time. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I've, I've been praying a lot about where I am, and my prayer is okay. So this is where I am. It's almost like I have a plot of soil in front of me, and I just want to till the soil and work at it with all of my heart and do the best that I can with where He has me right now. And so that's my focus is to do the best I can and, and to serve the people of my parish to the best of my ability. And it's such a blessing. You know, I, I see all the people that I serve almost as like my spiritual children, even the older ones. Um, and we have beautiful families and just beautiful people. And so my heart is full and they're just so kind and loving to me too. Um, but, but yeah, so this is where he has me. And so I want to do the best I can. You know, they say bloom where you're planted. But I know that that's not it. And so, yeah, I'm just... Maybe that's just the way I am. It's like, dude, I'm here for now, and then we'll see what happens next, see where he brings me next. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I don't see, there's, that's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's, I think it's actually really common, but it's, it's unusual to hear people say that. Hmm. I mean, a lot of people that, you know, the way that we are, I think, in this world, we, we want to go full force at whatever it is that we're trying to, and we say, like, this is what I'm going to do forever, or at least that's what I hear. Huh. But you seem comfortable with this uncertainty and just doing the best you can where yeah. you are now. Yeah, I think I think God's prepped me for it. <laughs> then, um, yeah, there's just uh, there's so many things that I've been able to do in my life. I've been so blessed, and there's so many things that I can do, um, and want to do. And there's so many desires that I have. You know, I love to teach. Maybe go back to school and study theology. There's so many things, and I just want to kind of lay them. Out at the foot of the cross and just be led by him totally and just trust him 
with my life. And he's so faithful um, and he's so good. So just, and it's a continual every day, just trust. Trust where he'll lead me and guide me. And at the same time, you seem to like um, the friction of competition. You seem to like, you're not just satisfied to just kind of hang out and do whatever. You're like, oh, I'm going to go for the next thing. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to try to qualify for the Olympics. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that is uh, Coach Richard Barron, um, such a wonderful man. And so uh, he was the head coach at the University of Maine. He took over in 2011 and he hired me and I became his director of operations. And so when I resigned the second time, um, he said, Tracy, you know, you just can't be faithful like a Catholic. You have to become, you have to, you know, think about becoming a nun. You know, you just can't run. You have to run marathons. And so I think it's just a part of who I am. Just it's ingrained in me. It's just who God has made me to be. And uh, yeah, I'm very passionate and very competitive. And so with running, it's been a blessing because I'm so competitive and I need that like goal and that drive. Um, and so running's great for that. And, and thanks be to God that I'm able to do it at my age um, because, they, you know, they say um, since I'm late to the sport and, you know, as women, we kind of tend to do better in our mid to late 30s in endurance sports like in the marathon. And so kind of hopefully hitting my prime. But, yeah, you know, how much how cool would it be to run in the Olympic trials, run alongside the best of the best? Not that I'm going to win it. People are cute. Like, God bless people. They're so sweet. They think I'm going to the Olympics. And I have to explain. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to win the race. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can. It's only 20 minutes. I'm like, yeah, but it's, you know, these women are running like five-minute miles, and that's really fast. Um, but people are so supportive and so sweet. Uh, but, yeah, what a, what a neat goal to have. And so, yeah, so that's kind of like my next. Even though I ran the time, that's kind of my next um, goal. So you ran in California, and it wasn't what you wanted to run. You right. didn't quite qualify, but now you're going to go again for Boston. That's right. In the spring. That's right, yeah. And so ran the main marathon, and unfortunately, we didn't know this, and even the race director wasn't aware that it's not a USATF certified course. And so dis- despite the fact that I ran the, the qualifying time of a, a – I ran a 243, which you have to run a sub-245, it doesn't qualify. And so we've petitioned USATF and – everything. And I'm still praying for a miracle. Um, so if there's any way, anybody listening, I'm praying for a miracle that they would take the time just because it was such just, you know, my first, my first time running it and I won the marathon and such an emotional day. Um, and so then I had it in mind to run the California International Marathon and uh, didn't, didn't run my time. I ran a two hours and 48 minutes out there. Um, and I think I jumped back into training way too fast. And they say, you know, it's not very prudent to do back-to-back marathons. And I learned the hard way. Usually you have one in the spring and one in the fall because your body naturally can't just peak and then come down and peak again really quickly. And being the competitor that I am, I just jumped into heavy mileage. I ran 120 miles a week, 115, 110. And, and sadly to admit, I ran 90 even before the race. I don't know what I was thinking. So I ran 90 the week before, which is what not to do um, when you when you race marathons. Um, but I was very thankful to go out there. You know, One, it was California. I ran in shorts and a t-shirt. Uh, but it was also the USATF National Championships. So the field was loaded with all these amazing professional runners. Um, and because of my time at Maine, I was an elite 
athlete. And so I was considered an elite athlete in the field. And so it was really neat to be like kind of treated that way, kind of dip my toes into what it feels to uh, to be taken care of and to be an elite athlete at a race. And, you know, we have our own bottles on the course and we get VIP treatment. We get this special bus to the start, our own little tent next to the start. This is important, extra porta potties <laughs> before the race, like all those, you know, small little things that help make it easier. Um, so that was just a blessing. Um, and my mother came out with me and we spent the week, you know, so we ran the race. Um, I went out too hard. I didn't run my time, but I was thankful to be out there. Uh, and, you know, and when I run, I look at running too as just my time with God. And so, you know, it was, it was a great 26.2 miles of pain and suffering and praying because <laughs> I, was, I was really tired and I, I suffered a lot, but uh, it was just a great time of prayer and time spent with the Lord. Um, and then after, uh, Mom and I were able to go to Napa Valley and uh, visit the vineyards and do some wine testing. And then we went to San Francisco and spent some time there. So it was just, it was a, it was a gift to be able to go out there and spend that time with my mom. Um, so I took some time off and yes, so Boston is my next goal race on Patriots day. And I've already jumped back into training, took some, took some good time off and uh, now I'm back at it. And it's funny, you could tell you're back at marathon training because I'm like constantly tired and always hungry. <laughs> It's just, you know, I'm starting to crave pancakes again. And so you know that you're you're getting into training, serious training. So hopefully, you know, my goal for Boston would be a sub 240. So so hopefully I could, you know, PR and run faster and, and get that qualifying time you know, at Boston. For people who have a faith, <clears throat> but are also trying to um, be fully within the world, within the secular world, the way that you have, do you have any words of advice or wisdom because I think it's a challenge yeah um I think um you know it's you could you could relate it to the 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 field of athletics and being an athlete I think that's why God made me an athlete it's the only reason why was to come to know him more my conversion and my growth and my faith um because as a as an athlete you're single-minded you know you're, you're focused on that goal that you're working towards and in in my faith life I'm just focused on Christ um and it's an everyday surrendering my life to him and um, just really being aware of his presence throughout the day um, and putting him first in everything. And it is hard, you know, because it's it's countercultural. Um, a lot of my belief in, in the things that, you know, of faith are different than what the world um, teaches or, or tells you. And so, yeah, it's challenging, but I like the challenge. Um, you know, and it's making sure that I give him my first and my best. So, you know, like this morning, um, my first thing is my cup of coffee, Starbucks, uh, and my, my prayer time. You know, I'm spending time with him in the Bible, um, just in prayer. And then I, I like to go to daily Mass as much as I can. So as a Catholic, we go to Mass on the weekends, but this morning I went to Mass because I knew I was coming down here for the interview, and so I want to make sure that I put him first. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, you know, it, it is, it's a challenge, but I love the challenge, and it's it's really, it's only by his grace and the strength that he gives me to able to live my, my life in the world. And I just want to be a blessing to people as well. I just want to love people and be a blessing and, and serve people. Um, and, and doing that, like giving my life to people brings me so much joy. So it's more, of, it's like sometimes more of a blessing to me. Like it fills my heart so much to be able to live this way and to, to be a Christian in the world as well. Well, I appreciate your taking the time out of your busy schedule and all the people that you serve and, and your, your running, which takes mm -hmm. up a <laughs> lot of time as well. Um, I've been speaking with Tracy Garrett, who is an elite runner who won the Maine Marathon last October and also a former University of Maine basketball player and currently the director of faith formation at St. Paul the Apostle Church in Bangor. Um, 
I guess I can still say good luck. You don't have to say break a leg. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm running not break a leg. Yep. Good luck at Thank the you. Boston Marathon, and uh, I'll be paying attention. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.